Welcome back to the Everyday Story Podcast. My name is Ben Armstrong. And I'm Jack Clem. We have another Learn Well episode for you today, but right before we get into that, um, we are in a great space and we've had some beautiful weather here. And unfortunately, we're at a busy intersection. And so (laughs) you might hear uh, a loud motorcycle go past or two in this episode, and that's okay. Um, Hopefully it won't disturb the content too much. We're really excited. We have another interview for you today, Dr. David Wallace. And uh, Dr. Clem is going to introduce him to us because uh, you know him a little bit, don't you? That's right, I do. I got to meet uh, Dr. Wallace, David we'll call him, at uh, Regent University. And so we worked together in the biblical studies and Christian ministry department. And he's been there about five years. And I've really come to enjoy him, fellowship with him, the times that we have together. And uh, he has recently published a great article on the book of Philemon. And we, Ben and I, wanted to do some study in the single chapter books of the New Testament. So we did a little bit of something with Philemon back in July of 2020. So we pulled that back out and we thought, uh, why don't we invite David to talk to us about um, his work and see where that's going. So, so David, it's great to have you with us today. Thank Welcome. you for having me. It's great to be here. I have to admit, um, when I first found out that we were having a David Wallace <laughs> on the Everyday Story podcast, I was really, really, really excited. And I had a picture in my mind <laughs> of what David Wallace would look like. And and uh, you know, you, you don't look like the David Wallace I was expecting, but right. I'm still really excited. Right, from the office. Yeah, but... That's okay. Well, I was thinking of the guy who published some Greek uh, textbooks. I don't know. I wasn't thinking of The Office. <laughs> oh, that's true. I guess, is that another David Wallace? That's a Daniel Wallace. Daniel, Daniel Wallace. It's a Daniel Wallace, yep. Uh, who is my brother. Uh, is that right? But not that Daniel Wallace. That, yeah. <laughs> His name's Daniel. But he is your brother in another sense too, right? Uh, well, that true. that's yeah. true. Yep. So many so Wallaces. Anyway. Both are good men. That's great. Well, David, it's really great to uh, have this opportunity to explore this article that you wrote for the Bulletin of Biblical Research. And it's a little bit more of a technical article, uh, for sure, scholarly, uh, absolutely, and you know, definitely reflects your, your uh, skill set and your caliber of work, et cetera. Um, and so today, we just want to glean from that as much as we can, just to find out um, you know, how we can glean from that and take away from your work there and use it in our own personal study of the book of Philemon. We want you to put the cookies on the lowest shelf for us because I'm tall, but I had to reach for for the cookies. They were good. No problem. No problem. Yeah. And I I didn't think it would be a problem because I, you know, I know in your past, you've been involved in church ministries. You've been a prison chaplain. So you know what it is to communicate effectively with... uh, Yeah. Anytime you write for an academic journal, you have to turn it up a little bit in terms of the more formal wording and do the extra research to show that you cover your bases. But if you boil it down, the principles are still the same. Yes, that's so true. So I, I didn't have any angst about uh, you oh, good. coming into this conversation with us. And, and I just thought it'd be a fun time to talk about Philemon. Thank you. And launch us into our study of the single chapter Yay. books of the New Testament that sometimes get neglected. But Philemon is one that, that gets a little bit more attention. Mm-hmm. So, so why don't you tell us, um, first of all, a little bit more about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your family, just okay. so we get to know you just a little bit more. So we, we uh, understand you're here at Regent about five years, and, 
you know, we work together in that uh, classroom setting and, and teaching routine. But tell us a little bit about um, family, children, okay, and experiences that you've had up to this point. Well, I, I was raised in a military family, so I really moved around a lot. And that just continued after I left home to, with my education. So I've been in a lot of different places. Uh, I think that's a plus to have the discipline of a retired colonel as a father uh, from Vermont and a mother from California. Mom was Church of Christ when she met Catholic dad, and she won. Um, so uh, was raised in uh, different churches, different Protestant churches, uh, but really, my heart is to encourage and exhort people. And um, I studied business in college and then went to Regent for communication, which is where that connection is. And then I went into sales for just a short period of time and did well, but I realized, mm, I don't like selling things that people don't need. It was television advertising, and I had to meet a quota. So I just spent lots of time in prayer, and that's when the Lord said, I want you to take the gospel of the loss and build up the church. So that was a turning point in my life. Amen. And uh, I kind of got frustrated with him. Why, why would you have me do all this to then call me into ministry? And I remember looking at my bookshelves with the business books and the communication books on another shelf and my Bible at the bottom. Here I am in seminary. And it was very gracious of God. It hit me that I'm in the business of communicating the gospel. Yeah, and he had a plan in that. And so I really just love to encourage people with Scripture and explain Scripture and, uh, you know, if it's not God's word, it's not going to have eternal value. Hmm. Hmm. So what's uh, one of the questions we've liked to ask uh, our guests is what's your favorite story in the Bible and why? I, I think when you uh, mention that, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is uh, David and Goliath. It's probably one that a lot of people have as their favorite story. But the reason why that's my favorite story is that you just have this young man who, against unreasonable odds, feels God's spirit and runs to the battlefield. And the courage in combination with being, uh, in a sense, uh, experiencing God's spirit, whatever was happening there in David, and him running to the battlefield and, and uh, speaking out against Goliath and what Goliath said, in contrast to the rest of his compatriots, it's just amazing to me, and I've always uh, admired that reality. I don't necessarily give credit to David, although there's some faith there, and he's a, he's faithful in those moments. But the, the 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 connection between God's Spirit and David on that battlefield, it's just always a, 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 I, I go back to that story and read it, and always get encouraged. That's really helpful. I think that's awesome. So you wrote an article on Philemon. What got you interested in studying the letter to Philemon? It was my first year uh, at Regent teaching, and one of the administrators came to me and asked me a question about Philemon. And, of course, my dissertation's been in Paul's letters in Romans, and then I had published another work in Romans. And so I felt the need to be able to answer his question. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you've studied the Bible for any length of time, you know that you only know a little bit, no matter how much you know. So that sort of motivated me to get the answer. And it had to do with uh, the sl popular slavery question, you know, was Paul wanting uh, Onesimus to be freed? And Onesimus is the slave that Philemon owned that had run away. And so the big question there is, 
you know, in a in the in a few verses uh, toward the end of that short letter. Of course, short letter. It was not a short letter for the Greco-Roman world. The average letter was ninety words. So Paul expands the uh, letter format for his his own uses uh, for the gospel. But for this uh, probably typical letter size, uh, he uh, he he. The question is that people ask is was he asking for. Uh, Philemon to release Onesimus and be free, or was he asking him to be in service of the gospel, or was he not asking that at all? And so when I was asked that by an administrator, I felt like, you know, this is worth teasing out. And I knew at that point, even when he asked me, that there was a friendship element there. And so I just spent some time just writing uh, a, a, a response to him. It ended up being like five, six, seven pages, single-spaced, and uh, that's what started it. And then uh, part of um, the um, tenure process is publishing. So since I had already started that process, I thought, let me, let me tie all this stuff down and really look this stuff up to see how much of the friendship motif or template is uh, in the context or background for Paul. Mm-hmm. So in your work, what you did, which is rather fascinating, you you found some of the work that Aristotle did on just this concept of friendship. So can you just tell us a little bit about what that was? You know, what did Aristotle write? How did he talk about friendship that, and in what way does his work on friendship from that context of his time help us to better understand the friendship theme in the book of Philemon? I would like to begin that answer to that question, giving a little uh, different layer leading into that. Most everybody who's listening has probably had a speech class in high school or a speech class in college. They've ha- they've been introduced to speech, and all the speech books are based on Aristotle's divisions, his ethos, pathos, logos, these concept of emotion, logic, arrangement, um, credibility. I mean, the speech books basically are based on his ideas. And he, was, he wrote and spoke 300 years before Christ. So his influence isn't, is till today. So just like people followed his rhetoric, they also read his treatises or heard about his treatises on friendship. And so the Greco-Roman world, uh, you can see that his uh, teaching or the concepts permeated uh, you know, over a couple hundred years to influence the way the culture did friendship. So it's different than our day. It's not quite like the speech stuff. Uh, but if you if you were to read his uh, book eight and nine of the Neomachian Ethics, you will just see him tease out and explain what friendship is and should be. And if you, it's not just an echo in Philemon. He actually uses some words that. Aristotle would use. Mm. It's not that he's reading Aristotle, but it's in the air, it's in the culture. And so um, there's a currency of friendship in the Greco-Roman world that Paul decides to pull from to write to a Greek Christian who's probably has some education to, to reach him with really the gospel, mm-hmm. which he already is familiar with. Philemon is a believer. He's he uh, has somewhat some maturity. He's the house, it, the church meets in his house. And so um, 
Paul finds a bridge of friendship. It's not the only bridge, but it's a significant one in the letter. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of things in that uh, that work of Aristotle that you cited that I thought was especially uh, interesting. You know, talking about equal and unequal relationships, and then. Uh, I, I especially enjoyed that uh, definition of friendship, mature men who are good and virtuous purposely develop a lifelong bond, you know, those ideas. I thought those were really sort of um, just rich and healthy and really gave perspective on how we have relationships with one another. What else would you say in Aristotle's work, or maybe two or three things from Aristotle's work would you say would be, you know, key that you would help that you would cite that would be helpful for us to keep in mind as we read the book? Well, I think those that are listening, um, I probably should give a little bit of definition to attract them to this whole concept because they may uh, be turned off by, you know, what friendship, well, we're all friends. So I think a little bit of definition on the different levels that you're talking about would be important. So Aristotle, and, and we see here in Paul, and I think the thing with, if you read, if you read uh, Philemon, and you can pause uh, listening to this if you need to, and read the letter, it doesn't take very much time, and you'll see that there are three different times where Paul exchanges uh, or, or provides a, a gift or exchange to Philemon about what God's doing. And he's, he's exchanging these uh, truths about God's grace because he he's also expects a response of friendship back. So there's a currency going on. And it's a little bit more assertive than our friendship today. Uh, in that day and age, I mean, they didn't, uh, if your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. And you didn't move up and down the ladder. And even if you were a slave and you earned your freedom, which happened quite a bit, you, uh, you, you, you still were obligated to your master. It wasn't like uh, it, complete freedom. Uh, but the, you, had a, you could earn your freedom. It's probably the average was seven years you could earn your freedom. But everything was one up and one down. A lot of kissing up, a lot of... You didn't move up and down the ladder. There were people above you and there were people below you, and that's the way it was. So in that culture, friendship became prized. And if you could have a relationship that's equal, that was a oasis away from this really fearful world when you there their religious beliefs in the gods being um, whimsical and not moral and uh, dutiful, no personal relationship with gods. Everybody was spiritual. So in this... Uh, you know, they don't portray it in history, but it's a fearful, fearful couple centuries there in Rome, in the Roman world. And uh, the, the, the idea of having something that you can share that's equal would be a, a prize and a treasure. So Aristotle explains what that means. And you'd, you'd have to be some criteria in order for this to work. You'd have to be, and, and guys interrupt me anytime if, if I'm going too long. This is long. great. No, this is great. So... Um, in terms of friendship, you had to be virtuous. So in the letter, if you read anything where Paul is is uh, expressing virtue uh, to Philemon, and we're going to see this in the Thanksgiving section where he says, you know, I've heard of your love and your faith for all the saints. Uh, you're effective in all goodness. I mean, he's going to praise uh, Philemon for his virtue. He's not being a flatterer. He's saying, we're on the same level. And this means we can exchange things on a very deep personal level. We're going to expect that from each other. Whereas, uh, Jack, you and I might, uh, 
you know, let's say you were to pay for my lunch. Well, I'll pay for your lunch the next time. It's sort of a emotional dollars back and forth. Mm-hmm. In our society, we just kind of measure each other. In that society, there would be a race to see who would pay first. Mm-hmm. There'd be a race to see who would love family, their family first and their friends. It was who can outgive each other. And uh, that almost sounds Christian, but it's more Aristotelian in that if you have, have reached a virtue, you're older, you're more mature, and you, you, you would then look out for each other's family, and you'd, you'd you sort of be in a situation where you'd um, be um, competing to see who gives. And so it'd be a very, you can, if, you, if you contrast that with a one-up one, one and one-down society, it would be a very valuable exchange. And I think of some of the Hispanic cultures in South America where if you ask them, oh, you, I like that lamp, uh, they're going to give it to you on the way out the right, door. Right. Uh, it's more um, assertive mm-hmm. than what we would expect as friends. And there were certain criteria. And that's why he spends quite a bit of time talking about what a friendship is and what isn't. Uh, for example, uh, you, if you were unequal in friendship, a father and a son could be friends, but the son would have to give a lot more mm-hmm. to compensate for that inequality. You couldn't be a friend with a slave. Uh, according to Aristotle, a slave was not human. And so that just wasn't a possibility. Now, can you imagine Paul writing and reinstating the slave to brother level? You talk about uh, redemption and the cross uh, behind all that. Uh, so there's, there's some of these currencies going on in this letter that if you didn't know about Aristotelian friendship, you'd miss it. Mm-hmm. That's why he doesn't use his apostleship to you know, cite why Philemon should do this. He, he actually like, you know, appeals to him as a friend. Is that right? He's the, it's the only letter where he, he doesn't uh, use his apostleship hmm. and he starts as a prisoner. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that, that idea, he's writing as a prisoner about a prisoner mm-hmm. that uh, ultimately together with Philemon, their brothers in Christ and share a, an equal status in him. It's, it's so a, there, there's, a, there's a couple of streams happening in the letter. He, he, he comes below everybody by identifying as a prisoner. Mm-hmm. And, he, uh, and not everyone would agree with this that, that studies this, but it seems to me that he's drawing uh, Philemon into that level mm-hmm. as, as a slave of Christ mm-hmm. so that he can then turn around and bring about equality with all three of them. Yeah. And uh, everyone agrees with that last statement. Yeah, yeah. As I was thinking about... Uh, just this concept or these insights from Aristotle, uh, you know, just thinking, well, uh, can we understand the book without knowing all of this information that um, you cite? Um, and, you know, what benefit is it? You know, and, and so I, I think about how it, it seems like Paul is working within cultural boundaries, but also kind of blowing the cultural boundaries or norms when he gets to talk about the relationship that the three of them have as oh, yeah. slaves in Christ. He's radical. Yeah. Paul's radical. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't often give him credit for that. But he's radical. Uh, for example, in the household codes, they didn't generally mention women mm-hmm. or slaves, but the Christian writers bring them into the household codes right. and are concerned. Um, I think what would help uh, for those listening is I want you to hear some of the the how Paul is phrasing the gifts that he's mentioning. Because the more he gives or the more the Lord works through Paul to give to Philemon, 
it's going to challenge Philemon to turn around and up the ante and give back. And so there are three relative clauses in verses 11, 12, and 13 that all begin with the same relative pronoun. And I'm just going to quickly paraphrase for you what's happening. He says, you know, I I gave birth to, to Onesimus in prison, and he was useless to you then. But now, to you and me, he's useful. So the first gift that he's returning is saying, look what God has done with Onesimus' soul. And, and you have to remember, uh, Paul led Philemon to the Lord too. So there's a little equality here being expressed. He hasn't mentioned it yet, but they're both his spiritual sons. So there's different, there's different levels. And if you are a friend, you always treat your family with great, you, you treat each other's family with uh, access and uh, benefit. So, this, so here he's returning to Philemon, Onesimus, the slave, who's now very useful. So that's a benefit. And then the second benefit, he says, whom I send back to you, who's my very heart. Now, there's a, that's the second gift. Is I, I'm giving you my heart. Now, what's very interesting here is Onesimus is the, uh, it, they're, they're meeting, the church is meeting at uh, Philemon's house. And so Philemon is, Paul expresses in the Thanksgiving section that these people in your house, these Christians are your heart. And he uses the same word to show that how you care for the people in your church group. So I'm giving you back my church group in a sense, or my son. And so he's, he's actually giving him his heart. That's the second benefit. And the third benefit, he says, whom I wish to have kept for myself in order that on behalf of you, to, uh, to, on behalf of you he'll be a servant in the bonds of the gospel. And uh, so he, there, here's, another, here's another expression where Paul's saying, you have an opportunity to return this to me, but for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So he lists three benefits in a row. Mm-hmm. To, it, it puts pressure on Philemon, but it's, according to Aristotle, that's not pressure, that's friendship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what real friendship is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it almost sounds Christian, the way Aristotle presents it. And then uh, I think what's also important for the readers, if you read, reread that letter, he's moving from general request and list of benefits to a very specific request. He says, I beseech you as an older man, a prisoner of Christ, and I beseech you, beseech you concerning my son. So family gets preference with friendship. And then he lists these three benefits. It's almost like if you think a scale, he's putting these bricks, <laughs> these love bricks on a scale and saying, can you... Can you taught me, Philemon? Because if we're truly virtuous yeah. and we're truly friends, this is my son, and I am expecting good things from you. So I mean, it's loaded. So that's really interesting because I think if 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 we're just going to read it in our culture and not have that those principles in mind of how they're thinking and how they're engaging, um, someone could read the letter to Philemon and think that Paul's being pretty manipulative. Yes, mm-hmm. but Absolutely, he's not. Ben but he's not. And nope. that's really important. And, and that changes the way we would read Philemon. And that, that totally changes how we would seek to emulate it or learn from it mm-hmm. or appreciate it. Because um, otherwise you'd be like, man, this is, this is pretty heavy handed. Like this is pretty passive aggressive almost, mm-hmm. but he's not. This is normal. In and this fact, is almost to be expected. This is fact, expected. Yeah. If he were to flatter, Aristotle particularly addresses that and says, if you flatter, it shows an uneven relationship, mm-hmm. and therefore you're not on equal ground, and friends wouldn't flatter. So you've, you've got to retrain your American mindset, and I don't know if anybody is listening that's um, 
outside of the United States, but maybe it would be a different context. But in American thinking, a flattery would be seen as flattery. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's really helpful. I mean, yeah, so like we've picked up on these these things that, you know, there's obviously a culture difference. Um, how would you describe the way that like, you know, we think about friendship today? I think there are a lot of like, un, you know, undertones and unstated realities that affect how we think about friendship. If you thought a lot about um, Paul's world, are there any observations about how any more differences or things that we should be aware of that is like, oh, like I don't even think of friendship that like I didn't even know I thought about friendship that way. That's really like I, I don't think I've ever thought about how uh, I think about the currency of like friendship in my world. We just live that way. Um, so do you have any other perspectives on? Well, I the think it, the core of this is the word koinonia and it's the word for common and it's the it's the New Testament word that uh, they, the Greeks uh, believed in this type of friendship. In fact, it's Aristotle actually uses the word koinonia, and Paul uses it twice in verse 8 and 17. And he says uh, in verse 8, he says, uh, I think it was verse 7 or 8, but he mentions uh, koinonia twice, and particularly when he says in verse 17, if you have fellowship or if you have koinonia with me, receive him as me. So, Koinonia was a Greco-Roman idea of friendship, and the Christians hijacked the term and often used it for their uh, communion and love, love uh, the not love, love feasts in terms of uh, recognizing the blood and body of Christ. The Christians uh, supersized it in a sense. And so koinonia is not just this uh, reciprocal connection, but it has to do with the blood and body of Christ and what he's done for us and the sacrificial nature. And so it became a celebration. And so when Paul pulls on the word koinonia, he's not only pulling on the Aristotelian idea that's part of the culture, he's pulling on the Christian idea, which is what Christ has done for me. In fact, um, when I said he supersizes it, he uses certain terms in this letter, how much more, like in verse 16, for Paul, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. For Paul, God can work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So in real life, we see an example. You, you mentioned earlier a type or an example, or with flattery not being the way we should do it. But with Paul, he is actually practicing his, practicing his theology that we might read in Romans, You know, whether it's the nations and God, how much more if Israel uh, is reinstated that God will... Uh, bring about fullness with the remnant or in the personal life, his own life and the struggle he had. There's no condemnation where sin abounds, grace abounds more. These, these how much more, this exponential uh, use of what's negative and mm -hmm. trash turning out to be something that can be beautiful and meaningful. It reminds me of the woman that wept at Jesus' feet and he says, to whom is much given, that person loves much. Um, Paul is living it out here and, and he's banking his... He's banking on the principles of, of what he knows to be true about Scripture and Christ. And he's saying um, he, he's not a slave, just a slave anymore. How, he's a beloved brother. How much more to you, both humanly, meaning presently, and now, and in the Lord, and for eternal purposes. So Paul, to put it simply, he's living the gospel by challenging Philemon to join him in what God can do uh, through a runaway slave that 
most likely had either taken something and surely was legally wrong and could be killed for it. He's saying, look what God can do uh, with Onesimus's life. And, you know, let's reinstate him like God has reinstated you. And reinst- I mean, Paul knows what that's like mm-hmm. as uh, his own conversion. Yeah, when you think about Philemon, I, I wonder, as I was reading the epistle, like, I wonder what, what Philemon is thinking, you know, about Onesimus. And, you know, and of course, we don't have a lot of insight from the letter about that, but we see how Paul approaches Philemon. <laughs> and, you know, whenever I think about going into a difficult conversation, I'm trying to, you know, think about, well, how am I going to, you know, what, what are they, I'm trying to anticipate what they're thinking so that I can respond to that. Well, that, can I ask you a question? Is that fair That's on your fair, show? Sure. <laughs> Is it really? That's absolutely. Please okay. do it. Okay. Yeah. So let's say you are Philemon and you had a house church. And most houses that had servants or slaves had more than one. So this is not meant to be a comfortable letter. Uh, We'd like it to be all smiley and warm and friendly. But if you had like five servants, paid servants, say indentured servants, and here he's saying you need need to like let this person go, either serve me in the gospel or just, you know, would you feel pressure to... Oh, I'd be very for the others. Well, I would be very conflicted, you know, to be quite honest with you, because I, I was trying to think about, I was trying to read myself into the story as Philemon, thinking if I'm receiving this from Paul, how would I be feeling about all of this? And I, I would be very conflicted. Yeah, because you, you're talking about what I do for one uh, person right, in my right. household, I'd have to do for all for of them. All, right. And if you notice, this letter's not written to Philemon only. Mm-hmm. It's written to the house church as well. Oh, there's a so, great sense of accountability. You know, like everybody's going to be if watching there's any, Philemon. If there's any manipulation, it's that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. think he is. He's, yeah. What he's saying is this. He's going, this is a household matter. And that this is what the Greco-Roman world was much more collective in their thinking. You know, if you ask an aborigine in Australia his name, he's going to tell you his last name. That's his identity. Well, and that culture is much more collective. And the whole household was a unit. That's why we see people all coming to know the Lord. Because if the if the patriarch came to know the Lord or served a particular God, false God, everybody seemed would, 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 would be pressured to follow, which is why there's some tension in some of the New Testament letters, like First Peter. But here we have a, a household. And so whatever you do, not only in the household, but also the church that meets there, it's going to have a ripple effect. Right. So Paul knows that. Mm-hmm. And this, isn't a, this is an element of accountability. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not a comfortable place necessarily for Philemon, but I think Paul's actually making it easy for him. Right, right, right. He is making the road to um, forgive and to be giving to the gospel easy for him. Original music for this podcast was created by John Horton. Her graphics were designed by Virginia Stroud. And this episode was mixed and mastered by yours truly. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we'll see you next time here on the Everyday Story Podcast.